This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, June 5th at 1.28 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. I think in the end of the day, recognizing that a lie gets, you know, halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on, I mean, truth still, we still have to be better at it and in a way we have to win, right? We have to win the debate in the end and we can't rely upon rules every step of the way to get us there. We just have to win the debate. some pretty big whoppers when it comes to politicians telling the truth. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The lies of former U.S. President Richard Nixon or Bill Clinton are perhaps the most infamous. The Washington Post now reports that current President Donald Trump has lied or issued misleading statements more than 10,000 times. We passed the largest tax cuts in the history of our country. Trump's tax cut is the eighth largest in the last hundred years. Politicians in Canada also have a casual relationship with the truth at times. The allegations in the Globe story this morning are false. That's Justin Trudeau responding to the bombshell report that his office had pressured the Attorney General to intervene in the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. But when Alberta wants to get its natural resources to market through either Northern Gateway, Trans Mountain, or a West to East Pipeline, well then Justin Trudeau just backs off and allows these projects to slowly die or in some cases veto them. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer might want to believe that, but the Prime Minister actually bought a pipeline to ensure Trans Mountain got built. So we, we made Mifigamiso, which is the abortion pill available for women. Actually, no. The Liberals did not approve that pill. It was done by Health Canada under Stephen Harper's government in 2015. Whether it's misleading statements to the media or declarations repeated in the Commons that are just untrue. More than 400 Mexicans with ties to drug cartel have entered Canada since the Liberals removed visas for Mexico. 400 nationals from Mexico with links to drug cartels, many using fake passports, have entered Canada. I'm rather surprised that the Honourable Gentleman continues to uh, use statistics that have been totally discredited. According to the records of the uh, CBSA, uh, the number of uh, Mexicans that have uh, been uh, connected or linked to the, uh, the alleged cartels is not 400. It is, in fact, three. Not 300, Mr. Speaker, three. Or false claims in social media, as we saw last week when the Conservatives said the Prime Minister had abdicated his responsibility by not raising Arctic sovereignty with the U.S. Vice President. That was vigorously challenged by Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland, who tweeted, Facts matter, Andrew Scheer. And she noted the government's own press release clearly stated Trudeau had raised the issue with Mike Pence. Those tweets are still up, by the way. So, do facts matter, or is it just about which spokesperson you believe? I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. In this era of so-called fake news... That's important is you've got fake news organizations now walking around parading as if they are news organizations, and they haven't come close to journalism or the ethics of journalism. Foreign influence in our election and fake news. Fake news is able to spread even faster. I've never heard fake news like that before. And disinformation and misinformation online, what can and should we do about it? 
what responsibilities do politicians have to ensure that we debate policy based on facts and that we're not responding emotionally to statements that are fact-free. Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, outgoing NDP MP Nathan Cullen, and veteran journalist turned conservative MP Peter Kent join me to talk about that. argument about the Pizzagate. Remember the Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. Pizzagate? Sat with two very nice constituents yep. for an hour almost trying to convince them that that was just not a true story. But their silo of news had confirmed it for them. Yep. And the fact that I was denying that Hillary Clinton was running a child sex ring out of a pizza store basement was making me part of the conspiracy. And I thought, well, wow, this is discouraging. Right, because here, here are people with access to the entire information of the world through the internet, and they are diving deep into nonsense and hateful stuff. Nathan Cullen, member of parliament for Skeena, Bulkley Valley. I want to start off this discussion by asking each of you if you think there is more lying in politics. And I don't mean accidentally saying something that is inaccurate, but I mean more deception and disinformation. Nate Erskine-Smith, Member of Parliament for Beaches East York. Hmm. I, I, in a way, defer because I've only been in politics (laughs) since 2015. Well, since since 2015, 2015, whoa. Uh, Can I, this is not to hedge, but can I say yes and no? Mm -hmm. It is harder on on the, the simple things to try to stretch the truth or lie. To say I was at a, a rally and there were 300 people there. It's, you know, if you're not willing to be in the Trump category of just falsifying clear evidence, um, the, the, which for storytellers is actually really hard. Um, I, I like to tell stories. I'm Irish and uh, specifics aren't always important in storytelling, more the feeling. The, the reason I say that, that's why I say there's less. Like there, someone can grab evidence so much faster. Um, and while you're in the meeting, hold up a Google search of what you said and say, well, no, that, that bill was passed in 2011, not 2000. No. Okay, you're right. Um, the, the reason there is more is because I think we are questioning the referees of society far more. There is, there's doubt cast upon judges, police, politicians, uh, news, uh, news uh, journalists, auditor generals, you know, like there's, there's, more doubt being cast on what people are getting from what were previously thought of as reliable, verifiable sources. I read it in the newspaper, it's solid. And, and that has crept in in a major way on both the right and the left. And I would say at the extremes of the right and the left more than in the middle lanes for those groups of folks. Truth has diminished in politics, uh, coincidental with the uh, unfortunate rise of social media. Uh, Peter Kent, Member of Parliament for Thornhill. Uh, Politics has become a much faster practice than it was at one time. Politicians of all all stripes, I think in just about every country in the world, are more selective in presenting facts, but presenting a, a very selective argument built only partially on the facts, and the balance isn't there. And what we used to call mainstream media, which used to be the the protector of, of truth and of trust and of, and of facts, 
um, has stopped doing that. I think the Washington Post is one of the few newspapers that still has its uh, mm -hmm. Pinocchio measurement, mm -hmm. uh, which it's given up in, in recent era. years. Yeah. They, they began applying at the beginning of the Trump administration, where they would have the Pinocchio nose growing longer and to longer. Say we, we hold the, the facts of it, and we will judge whether what he said was factual. Exactly. And, you know, the fourth estate originally evolved uh, to be the, the defender against the other three estates, the dominant three estates of, of society. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the shift to social media, the, the continuing collapse of mm -hmm. mainstream media, hard copy newspapers, thoughtful um, assessments. And there was a day in journalism, I don't know if you can remember that day, Althea, <laughs> when every news organization employed fact checkers. Their only job was to take a reporter's story, yep. call the principals who were quoted in the story, Is this true? Uh, go to the, to the archives to find out if the facts that were being cited were actually facts, um, and there were significant changes in a lot of stories because the fact checkers did their job. They were the first ones to lose their jobs when, when newspapers, when magazines. I can remember when McLean's used to have a whole department of fact checkers, and they would call back and, and re read back the quotes that someone might have given in an interview to make sure that those quotes were accurate. Uh, you know, I am much more junior to, uh, to Peter. I, honestly, I'm more Nate just discovered that Peter Kent's 76 years old. <laughs> I'm still getting I'll be 35 in a week and a half. But, I, uh, um, but I'm wary of this sense of golden age. I'm sure there, yeah, it was better. Enough. But I'm, I'm more worried about the amplification of if, if a crazy person wants to say something really awful and, and wrong and they're mm -hmm. lying on the internet, it is, there's a certain freedom to that. But I think the focus in many ways when we talk about new platforms and the lack of rules on those platforms is shouldn't they be responsible for amplifying that content where yeah. they do so? When they hold the public square, do they have any responsibility for what's shouted out in the public square if it leads to a riot? Yep, exactly. And Facebook is trying to say, it's just the square. We just put it up. If somebody screams some horrible racial epithets, then it happens. Okay, I want, I want to pause. Sorry. Because I want to talk first about your own responsibility as an elected official, because I feel like people are stretching the truth in ways that they mm -hmm. were not when I started, how long have I been here, 15 that? years ago? No, but I mean, just look, this weekend, uh, a liberal MP said something on a television program where she claimed that uh, it was a liberal government that had illegalized the uh, abortion pill. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was done under Stephen Harper's government in the last days, just before the last election campaign, mm -hmm. or the prime minister coming out about the Jody Wilson-Raybould story in January and saying, the story is false. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe he disagrees with some parts of the story, but her true. interpretation, she says that she was pressured and the story said she was, she felt pressured. So, you know, he came out and said, categorically, the story is false. Uh, so what responsibility is, do we yeah, have? Our, are politicians being more, and maybe this is a Donald Trump effect, I don't know, but are people just saying anything, like, and, uh, and to, not to just pick on the liberals, Andrew Scheer is saying that the carbon tax is actually going to cost you more when the PBO says, no, most people, unless you're quite wealthy, will actually be saving money under is, the, is, the rebate program. And like, everybody does. Is it. the debate around, not to pick on a colleague, but is the debate around what Mr. Cooper did at committee part of that responsibility? 
in terms of you talked about amplification. So the the reading of the Christchurch uh, terrorists manifesto into the House of Commons Record Act committee. But that's judgment. Is that's not a lie. Uh, right. So you you want to get into. Purposely I want to know if you lies. think people are lying more freely than they used to. In this place, specifically. Yeah. Well, with regards to a particular political leader being accused of sharing a stage with a, um, mm -hmm. an extreme fringe player, mm -hmm. which is absolutely, it's, I mean, it's been proven to be false, but it's still an accusation thrown across the floor of the House of Commons on a regular basis, mm -hmm. uh, along with... That the Andrew Shearer actually spoke to a group of people, and then after that was over, Faith Goldie, Faith Goldie. addressed the same not, people, no, but not from the same stage. Not from, from a, the, the stage at all, a, from outside the grounds of Parliament on the back of a pickup truck. truck. Yeah. And a picture has been put together, and it's been run on social media, and a lot of people actually still believe it, although the facts are against it. Isn't it isn't and it, some ministers continue to throw that across the stage as an example, accusing uh, Andrew Shear of being so an extremist. Where does the line association from, from spin to a lie? Right. Because right? I think, think there's yeah, exactly there's there's yeah. there's spin to say, Mr. Shear has associated himself with these groups or these these fringe elements, and that's terrible. To the outright lie, you stood by side Faith Goldie, and were fine doing it. Yeah. One is there's a kernel of truth in there that Andrew was at a rally with with yellow vests and there were signs being held across the street. Well, it wasn't with yellow vests. They attached themselves to you know, petroleum you know, workers who were out of work. You know, it, uh, a, so senior, quickly, a senior, a senior it into a, a more well, of a debate. Well, it sounds like because some true. people do it, then we could all do it. No, 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 that's not the argument that I'm, I'm using at all. I, I think someone told me once that you can't spin without a kernel of truth being present. You have to wrap your spin in politics around something that is actually true, or at the very, very least, people are inclined to believe is true. But Photoshop on social media That's makes the big lie credible That's That's to, the dark art. to people who don't double-check their, yeah, their facts. And, the, and now you just have the amplification to, to put those lies on steroids and send them around and then try to work backwards from there if you're the person being accused yeah. of something that isn't true. Yeah. So I was accused of something in a, in a CTV headline earlier this year that was absolutely opposite to what I said. And it took us four hours to work with the Bureau to finally get them to print a headline that was even close to reality. Didn't matter. It was too late. Like, it was gone. <laughs> that thing was on Twitter, and it was gone. So I spent the next week phoning up groups to try to figure them out. And individual. It was just a lot of work, and that happens sometimes. But what struck me is... Uh, how much um, effort has to go into correcting something, and it never really ever gets corrected. Oh. In, their, in the minds of the people that I offended through a headline that had nothing to do with what I actually said, the, the tone was set. And impressions really do stick. The impressions of Justin or Andrew or Jagmeet yep. matter, and, and, and matter in voting. And on, I mean, you can pick any number of issues where there's a clear truth where we'll all agree on that, and then there are others. The example where I would say, if I'm the leader of the Conservatives, I absolutely don't associate with people like that at all, and I think it is improper to do so. To to, to photo, but to Photoshop those people together is a, is, a, is an absolute lie, and we could all agree that that, that 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 is a lie. In some cases, though, there's a there are debatable points, and we will rightly disagree. And so I think that you got to bracket those from I think the conversation to have, which is do we lie more or do politicians lie more? We should be much more worried about not. The debates where there's maybe the kernel of truth that Nathan says, and we have differing viewpoints on it, but it's a flat out: the carbon tax is going to cost you more, and we're going to just ignore the rebate. 
uh, aspect of it. That there, that is, that is, I mean, that is misinformation. Um, but I, I, my view is politicians, I think, have always engaged in this. I don't know as an observer until 2015 that, that we do this more, uh, but maybe we do. I don't know. Like if, if you had to choose the range of emotions that drive clicks and drive traffic, love and openness and kindness towards others was probably something in there. But outright fear, anger, racism, controversy. Those, like you, just, you just look at the market and say, where do the biggest hits come? And I can look at my own post and say, here's a school doing amazing things in my riding, a thousand views. Here's this horrible betrayal of a promise made by the government, 10,000, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's a certain, I mean, working in the news outlets, you know that it's been true for a long time, but I think it's, we are now all market players. We are all involved in being producers of news to some extent. I mean, not in the sense of we're creating a lot of content, but we're watching in real time what works, what doesn't. And the emotional spectrum seems, the algorithm seems to be built, and it's probably just humans, not just an algorithm, that we seem to, the bleed it leads still remains and, true to some extent. And we know that news consumers don't work very hard to get the broad spectrum of what would lead them to what are real facts, what are truths, and what are either half-truths or complete misrepresentations. Mm. And I think that with regards to, to political uh, lies, political untruths, um, in the SNC-Lavalin uh, corruption scandal, uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould's taping of the clerk mm. of the Privy Council proved the contradiction uh, of a number of people's half-truths and actual lies about, um, about whether or not she had been pressured. Maybe. Well, I guess people interpreted that in a different way, sure. depending also, on how it, they viewed somewhat, the tape, but the fact that the tape existed, I think, helped people conf confirm whatever point yeah. of view they had. Yeah. But I asked you about um, lying in politics, because we have the discussion often about um, the disinformation spread on the internet. And I wondered if elected officials themselves in some ways are partly to blame. Like we have so much inaccurate information coming mm. from politicians themselves. And then how do you, how does like the consumer, the citizen decipher whether or not the information that they're reading is accurate or not? That's a lot of responsibility to well, place on Well, that's supposed to be the responsibility of the fourth estate. And the uh, fourth estate is, is letting Canadians, letting, well, around the world, letting citizens down. The fourth estate is supposed to be independent from the other three estates. Uh, and these days, the data monopoly estate um, and is supposed to be uh, the arbiter of truth, the arbiter of fact, the arbiter of reason. Uh, and we're not getting that. I mean, we see on CBC, you participate in the panel every Thursday night or many Thursday nights. Uh, and that is a fairly low-key, reasonable assessment of the controversies of the week, the political controversies of the week. Unfortunately, fortunately, it's, that's the biggest audience the National gets every week. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a very big audience when it comes to the number mm -hmm. of uninformed Canadians looking in who may be misled by, again, misspeaking or, or politicians not entirely accurately restating either a party position or a party, uh, a party statement. Uh, but I think that it's, I think news consumers have a greater responsibility to work a little harder, but I also think the media, the mainstream media, have a responsibility to work a lot harder on not necessarily 
tilting where their own political affinities may lie or where, where they think their subscribers lie, um, but in, in telling the truth. Like you think Is we it, should do a better job of being fact checkers? Yes, I think there should, I think there should be a, a job description in every responsible Trudeau. news organization to check the facts. Trudeau. Because a lot of people that I've spoken to, including, frankly, in your party, mm. um, think that our job should not be to fact check, that we should just butt out and let um, elected officials speak directly to constituents <laughs> and that, that our, our weighing in is what makes some people think that we are biased when we are saying well, this person is not saying the truth the facts don't bear out what this person is saying, and this person is giving an answer that's more factual. Well, the problem is, the problem occurred around the turn of the century. Which one? This century. <laughs> oh, okay. When, I, was, I was around for that one. When, <laughs> when Conrad Black created the National Post and acquired all of the Southern newspapers, mm -hmm. he did something which forced, the Toronto Star had always done this, more or less, but it forced all other newspapers to follow the National Post lead, and that was, to emulate the British media, where the columnists are on the front page, they've got opinion is sometimes there, very small letters. The best writers on any newspaper are the columnists. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of a sudden, papers were selling, but columnists do not present the whole truth. Columnists prevent, present stacked, selectively stacked Usually an argument. To, to support their argument, mm -hmm. their perception of what reality is. It turns out is. to be much more interesting to the average reader. It does, but the average reader is underserved. In the old days, yeah. a, a general assignment reporter would you know, lay out all the facts, the reader would, would come to their own conclusion, right or wrong. After all the columnists began appearing on the front page of the National Post, the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, more often, the Toronto Sun, newspapers, uh, all of a sudden, general assignment reporters said, boy, I've got to zip up my coffee if I ever want to get on the front page of the newspaper or even into the front section of the newspaper. And general assignment reporters today are becoming quasi-columnists in many ways. I, and I could name you quite a few. I won't, but I could name you quite a yeah, few. Yeah, I think in the newsroom, people view that as being analysis, quote-unquote. Right, which is opinion. Selective presentation of facts. But don't you think that... Uh, we used to chase objectivity. Objectivity is impossible to fully achieve, but there does. This need person to... says this. This person says that. There's not enough of this anymore. No, but the, exactly. But, but at it, the same time, yeah. you just said that you appreciate the issue panel and you think that that's worthwhile. And those are all columnists, basically, except for me. <laughs> they are, <laughs> but they, they very often don't agree, and they very often expose the sh the shades of difference between the positions that they think are more or less important. Okay, I want to run this tape from Barack Obama from last week at Canada 2020, um, because he talks about not just how people are self-selecting, but the fact that, you know, in this case, you're talking about CBC, and there's only a, there's a particular CBC viewer in this country, but there's a lot of people not getting their news from CBC who, and who don't trust CBC. So I'm just going to run this tape. If, if you and I can agree that this is a table, we might have a disagreement as to whether this is a nice table, is it, you know, big enough, uh, would we prefer wood, but at least we can have a conversation. If I say this is an elephant and you say this is a table, our, our conversation will not proceed that well. Um, and, and part of what we're seeing in our politics right now is, and, and this I do think is fed by the digital age much more powerfully than it used to be, is, is the, the Fox News viewer 
has a completely different reality than the New York Times reader. They have different facts, they have different emphases, they have a different narrative that they're following, different mental schemas that they're operating off of. In contrast to when I was young, yeah, you had three networks, you know, so you might prefer Brinkley over Cronkite, but they were basically telling the same story. There were similar standards of confirmation and how you established what was true and what was not. And democracies have difficulty operating if we can't, the, the marketplace of ideas that is the basis for our democratic practice has difficulty working if we don't have a, some common baseline of, of what's true and what's not. Maybe, maybe we're no longer the marketplace of ideas the way that it was. Because I'm, I'm, I'm doing a speech tonight. I get to do, they give us, t when you quit, you get 10 minutes. Sum up. <laughs> Jim Karajanis got a lot more than that. Yeah. A career of 15 years. I'm not going to aim that high. You know I would never aim as high as Jimmy K. The, um, and I was thinking about it, and I think a lot of that place and that space, Parliament, and it's the best and the worst, right? I've seen incredible, thoughtful, impassioned disagreement coming to some sort of resolution or understanding more fully of an idea, and then there's question period, and there's the bickering and, and, and noise. Worst, worst part of my day. It's not usually the best part of anyone's day, even those participating fully in it, because you just don't aim at the, at the level where you'd, you'd want to be. So it's the best and the worst, which is no surprise. We, we do have this sort of golden age notion oh, that things used to be less rough. And it's like, well, yeah, let me show you some transcripts. You know, things were, were sometimes brutal. And that's a reflection of us. Parliament is, is just a reflection of us and where we're at. That if we had this idea that there were these referees, these editorial boards, these harbingers of truth, and they were going to aim at this aim for objectivity, and that is no longer the case because people are more interested in opinion and analysis and interpretation of events, not just the stenography of what happened. Then he said, mm -hmm. then she said, then that's real. And I think the it seems like the the medium. I don't know. You do this podcast, which is an intimate, sit down, slow process, and there's a huge market for it across all fields, it's news and sports and movies. And there's also the 45 second, get me my 150 characters or whatever it is mm. today. Mm. The, 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 it seems to be dividing. People are quick and long. And maybe the way we do our politics has to respond to what's happening, which that's siloing I think of, where people are not hearing opinions. And I, I've said this from the time I was elected, I felt so blessed to come from Northern BC because a lot of my constituents are conservative, deeply held pro-life, you know, small government conservatives, and yet we're rural, so they're talking to me, and they're talking to me a lot. They don't just cut me out of their conversation and their lives. So I feel like I have a real insight and a blessing to see what it is that a gun owner wants to know about a new law. And a lot of my colleagues, particularly urban ones, just don't. And when I grew up in the city, I was way more siloed than I am in rural Canada. I had friends and people in life that looked a lot like me and thought a lot like me, and I liked it. And then I live in a small town, boom, I just, there would be six of us sitting around the table. And I, that's just, I, if anything that I was lucky on in politics, it was that. So that I can, so when, when I hear Peter or someone from the Conservative Caucus say something, I can relate to somebody who I like back home who has exactly that same view of things. I don't see it as, how can you be so ignorant? How can you be so wrong? It's just somebody with a different orientation on life. But social media is not great for that. No. There's, there, where's, the, where's the intimacy to play on a soccer team with somebody or be in the right, same coffee shop as somebody 
who looks at the world totally different than you. Show me that in Twitter. And social media thrives on sensation, scandal, yeah, controversy. Sure. Kittens. Yeah. And kittens. <laughs> Which nobody has cornered the market on, although Nate is trying hard. I've pretty much cornered it. Have you, have you got it now? <laughs> okay, so what should we do about it? Like, I hear, like, I, I had lunch with a liberal MP last week who was telling me he, came, he went to a town hall and it's riding, and everybody was upset about this. Well, several people came up to him upset about a story about the Bank of Canada taking over dormant accounts and giving the money in those mm. accounts to some casino in British Columbia. Mm. And he was like, what? This is not accurate information. Mm. But they read it on Facebook yeah. and it said it came from cbc.ca. So his constituents thought this was accurate. Ruby, Ruby Dalla's bill. <laughs> which, which some of your colleagues, Peter, the Ruby Dalla, former liberal MP from several parliaments ago now, had a bill about OAS. I think yes. CPP OAS for immediate arriving for immediate arriving immigrants, uh, immigrants. Yeah. and the party disowned it pretty much right away. It was my memory. Do you support Ruby and the liberal policy of giving pension to people who have only been in Canada for three years and will cost Canadians seven hundred million per year? The problem is still I get it on Facebook. Did you know that the Canadian government is subsidizing <laughs> newly arrived immigrants more than they're doing Canadian pensioners who have built up this country? And it's yeah, like, it's well, always immigrants versus I, seniors, right? And whatever and so the there's, meme is. There's yeah. a moment where people in the political spectrum. I'm not saying maybe an active politician within the Conservatives, but certainly folks in the war room are just every once in a it must be like a once a month spit out the Ruby Dalla bill, and liberals try to disown. And I say, and I have to spend my time trying to convince a voter of something they believe to be true, which is not true, and at some point you kind of give up. And how do you police, I mean, it's one thing to police disinformation mm. from foreign actors, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it might be practically difficult, but it, obviously if a foreign actor is promoting yeah. false and misleading information to disrupt an election, we can, most, I think all of us generally agree to say that should be against the law. Mm. Uh, it's a much more complicated thing to say, well, this person posted in good faith uh, so it's not an active lie employed in any way, it's in good faith and it's wrong and it's harmful probably if spread a great deal. I mean, I think in the end of the day, recognizing that a lie gets, you know, halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on, I mean, truth still, we, we still have to be better at it in a way we have to win, right? We have to win the debate in the end and we can't rely upon rules every step of the way to get us there, we just have to win the debate. I'm, I'm going to go super egghead and say that the, the, if you have a system where the motivations are baked into it, where if I'm running against these guys, the strong motivation is to tear them down. There is no motivation in our electoral system to say, Nate's got a great idea. I think Peter had something. There, there is none. I, I, and I, I ran for leadership for our party years ago. And one of my opponents accused me, said, Nathan spends more of his time talking to liberals and conservatives in their benches about things than he does in our own. Wow. And I thought, that's a good thing, isn't it? Like, I'm supposed to, isn't that my job to reach out? But we've, we've entered into an even more hyper-partisan where they've got to, those guys have got to be, and they have to not just be wrong, they have to be bad. They just can't be good mm -hmm. people. And that, I'm watching that with Scheer, I'm watching that with Trudeau, and I'm watching it with Singh. Where, there, where it's maybe on an issue, but I think people are speaking to and attacking character. And there's a motivation in our electoral system where it's binary and it's zero-sum game. If they go down, I go up. Therefore, there's, there's not, you talk about collaborative space or opening up my mind to different issues in different ways. It's just very difficult to say, I think on this issue, the conservatives have a real point. I think the liberal program they did on this was good.
Yep. Where's the where's the incentive and motivation in our current voting system and our current way of choosing our representatives? It's very low. And to add on to that, uh, as an issue that is related, because Peter was saying, you know, a, a strong and active active fourth estate, we have a, a government proposal for helping to fund media. Yes. And it Which has I gone. Oppose. Yeah. Well, no, but but it, it's gone sideways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rather than saying constructively, here's a proposal on the table to True. solve a problem that it's we all example. agree is a problem, yes. rather than tearing each other down so the whole issue goes sideways and there's no solution, there's no real active attempt to sit down and say, here's what your problem is, here's what your problem is, we all agree on, uh, on that we have to tackle this. Or propose How do we tackle new this ways, together? yeah. Or, pro- or propose new ways. Yeah. Let's run down the list. I've, I've got, got a got, few proposals. Uh, right. <laughs> I won't go into them It doesn't today. enter the debate, right? So on <laughs> guns, on yeah. climate, on the media bailout, like you start to yeah. run down the list and you say, where are the places where what Canadians, I think Canadians are not that partisan. In my experience, Canadians don't wake up in the morning concerned about our parties at all. They're worried about other things first. Yet we present a very siloed, yeah. color-coded mm-hmm. choice spectrum in which we have to make that contrast with the others and we don't make it in a way that is collaborative almost ever. So these issues that do, they get done in the back room. They get done at the committee, which is fine. We, you know, this-, this Well, some, some committees work Better than others. Yeah. others are hostile Justice from day one. Until Not for us to take credit for a committee <laughs> that works well. Your committee <laughs> is excellent. And you've got Charlie Angus there, which is a really good idea. And I know, we even get along with Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for having this discussion with me and cooperating and not lying. I appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nathan Cullen is a New Democrat MP from Mesquina Buckley Valley in British Columbia. He's been an MP since 2004. Peter Kent is a Conservative MP for Thornhill, Ontario. He's been an MP since 2008, a former Minister of the Environment. And prior to running for politics, Peter spent decades working as a journalist, a foreign correspondent, and an anchor. And Nathaniel Erskine-Smith is a Liberal MP for Beaches, East York. He was elected in 2015. I'm Kim Rudd, Member of Parliament in Northumberland, Peterborough South. Just yesterday, I had a constituent contact me on Facebook Messenger and said, is it true that the Finance Minister passed a bill in the House that is going to reduce uh, uh, pensioners' income by half? That's the exact expression I gave them as I'm writing the note back to him to say, absolutely not. And he said it was a Conservative Facebook post. I'm not saying Conservative Party, but uh, some iteration thereof. And my response to him was, well, it must be fake news. The good thing is he asked the question. But a lot of people don't ask the question, they just make the assumption, and I think it's a problem. Pierre-Luc Dussault, MP for Sherbrooke. Uh, We do uh, sometimes uh, encounter uh, some of my uh, constraints who uh, share some uh, fake content. Uh, one of them uh, that we actually receive quite often, and still uh, recently, a few few weeks ago, we received the uh, the fake news that uh, refugees get more uh, more money or may get more support, financial support from governments than uh, seniors in Canada. 
so so this is this goes back a few years ago uh, and they're still going through and still people sharing that and uh, there's still uh, uh, people who uh, send me this information and uh, uh, asking me what's my position on that and why we don't support more seniors uh, than refugees. So we have to correct the record and say what is the true information. Omar Al-Gabra, Member of Parliament for Mississauga Centre. You know, the most common uh, myth that I hear uh, about is whether refugees or newcomers receive more of financial aid than veterans or seniors. Uh, it's very difficult to counter fake news that taps into uh, some kind of perception that people already have. And it's very difficult then to try to convince them that it's not real. You may have seen Facebook posts or tweets claiming that refugees get more government aid than seniors, people on social assistance, or veterans. Well, let me say right off the top, it's not true. So my name is Matthew Dubay. I am uh, the NDP MP for Belair Chambly and the NDP's caucus chair. The email basically was was saying something about, uh, oh, uh, you know, uh, it was something, you know, and this is not my language, it's language from the, the email, but uh, illegal immigrants uh, are entitled to automatic pensions when they come to Canada uh, and, and all kinds, of, some, some nonsense. Some, some of this stuff seems like uh, it might be construed as policy debate, you know, you're debunking uh, information about government programs that's wrong, but what that that leads to is it leads to uh, creating this us and them narrative. It leads to uh, you know uh, other forms of disinformation that that paint certain groups a certain way. And what unfortunately that can lead to is it's a certain radicalization that happens that does unfortunately lead to uh, and tragically in fact violent acts that are committed and, and everything. And so I think when we tackle this misinformation that circulates, we have to see it uh, both as a, as a important for public policy, uh, but also in some ways for public safety. Uh, and I don't mean to be glib about that. It can be very dangerous. Dangerous. And for particular groups that are targeted by this type of disinformation can be at risk by uh, a certain folks that uh, uh, adhere to uh, dangerous and violent ideologies and that buy into this type of information. Blake Richards, Member of Parliament for Banff Airdrie. Um, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I don't even know what that term really means, to be honest with you. I mean, there's always stuff that people put out there that you, you, know, you wonder, I guess, about the... Uh, you know how accurate it is but I mean I don't know if that's if that counts as to being fake news but no it's not something I've ever seen a great concern with to be honest with you the only thing I can ever think of is there's sometimes those emails that come around that uh, you know they're sort of talking about the American and someone is changed you know something that's going on in the states and someone changes that to be the to be Canadian and uh, just substitutes in Parliament for Congress or things like that these things that people forward on the email chain things that uh, I think one of them had to do with uh, you know um, I think seniors benefits or something one time and it was actually American uh, that they were talking to the American system they were talking about but someone changed it to make it Canadian and then it just people forwarded it on that's the closest thing I can think of to this Jean-Yves Duglo, Member of Parliament for the Riding of Quebec. Well, I regularly see, regularly see fake news on my Facebook account. Well, one, one example of fake news that I see is the, the fact that the Conservatives seem to ignore that the Canada Child Benefit exists. I saw their, uh, their recent uh, advertisement claiming that middle-class families pay more taxes, which is entirely false because if you take into account the Canada Child Benefit, 
A typical middle class family now receives $2,000 more in 2019 and in 2015. Canadians have less in their pockets. More than 80% of middle income families are paying $800 more in taxes every year since he came to power. Something else which I saw also, which is a very a great concern, is the fact that uh, our incentives to fight pollution is giving more money in the pockets of eight families out of ten in provinces like Ontario, which the Conservatives again seem not to understand and to ignore. Roger Cosner, where are we doing an interview? Member of Parliament, Cape Breton Council. Uh, I, I think part of the politics, and, and it's gotten it's gotten worse in the last uh, four or five years. Certainly, um, you know, with, with what's what's transpired um, south of the border, truth uh, is something that uh, uh, probably uh, evades a lot of uh, discussions. Um, but you know, you can take uh, uh, an issue and and spin it, but I, I think there has to be. Uh, uh, it has to be based in, in truth and based in facts, and I think that's our responsibility. And those that, uh, but uh, I mean, you see the U.S. president, you know, he's he's called out continually on misinformation, and it doesn't seem to bother. There's still 43% of the American public that support him, and uh, it blows my mind. I don't think you get away with that in Canada. This week, the National Inquiry into Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls released its final report. It found that race-based genocide was committed against First Nations, Inuit and Métis women and girls, as well as two-spirited, LGBTQ, questioning, intersex and asexual people. Here's Chief Commissioner Marianne Buller spelling that out in more detail. The significant, persistent and deliberate pattern of systemic racial and gendered human and Indigenous rights violations and abuses perpetuated historically and maintained today by the Canadian state designed to displace Indigenous people from their lands, social structures and governance and to eradicate their existence as nations, communities, families and individuals is the cause of the disappearances, murders and violence experienced by Indigenous women, girls, 2SLGBTQIA people, and this is genocide. The National Inquiry was launched in 2016 after years of intense pressure on the federal government to investigate the disproportionate number of Indigenous women who've been killed or have gone missing in recent decades. More than 2,800 relatives of those women and girls came forward to participate in this inquiry process. My colleague, Zian Lam, was at the closing ceremony for the inquiry and joins me now. Hi, Z. Hi, Althea. 
Tell me about what you saw. I saw a really strong community. Women and girls who participated in the actual ceremony, when they went down to the main stage area, they were handed red carnations, and red carnations are symbolic of innocent blood that has been spilled. Away from the main stage area, there were displays of blankets, of quilts, and pieces of art that had been made during therapy sessions with survivors and family members. And at one point, I went to the bathroom, and I walked past a stall, and I saw a purse on the ground, and the door was slightly ajar, because uh, kind of wondering what was what's happening there. And I uh, asked a woman if she was okay. Um, it's a very emotionally heavy day. And um, she turned around, and she said that uh, she, she apologized to me, and she said that she didn't know um, what came over her. So that kind of is a small like, little anecdote to kind of show you how uh, emotional day it was for some. There's been a lot of attention on the use of the word genocide. We begin today's show in Canada, where a devastating national inquiry has determined that the frequent and widespread disappearance and murder of Indigenous girls and women is a genocide that the Canadian government itself is responsible for. The probe states the deaths or disappearance of thousands of women have likely gone unrecorded and admits that nobody really knows an exact number, although the estimates put the figure around 4,000. Canada's governments have long resisted calling its historical treatment of Indigenous peoples a genocide, preferring to use the term cultural genocide instead. Is that overshadowing the inquiry's findings? Yes, I would say so. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, for example, hasn't explicitly said that he agrees with the findings. And Carolyn Bennett, the Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs, and Justice Minister David Lametti, have all been have both been careful with their words. And they've only said that they accept the Commission's findings, not, for example, that they agree with them. And because genocide is technically a legal term, which has legal repercussions, it's not entirely surprising that the government is choosing to be careful with their word choices even if they feel comfortable with the term itself. And many folks are not comfortable with that term. Yes, and for example, former Liberal Senator and retired Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire said that he has a quote-unquote problem with the inquiry using that word. He, of course, served as the UN peacekeeping force commander in Rwanda. And he was the person, if you will recall, that who tried but failed to get the international community to stop the genocide of the Tutsi minority by the Hutu extremists in the 1990s. Dallaire said that what happened to Indigenous women and girls in Canada isn't the same thing. He called it scandalous and unacceptable, but it doesn't fall under his definition of genocide. Dallaire said that, the word genocide, is defined as a deliberate act of government to exterminate deliberately and by force and directly an ethnicity or a group. And then we have Erwin Kotler, who is a former liberal justice minister He's a human rights lawyer and activist, and he also said that he is uncomfortable with the term. He suggested that the inquiry felt it needed to use that specific word, genocide, to quote-unquote sound the alarm. But he said using the word genocide to describe what happened ultimately watered it down. And in the room on Monday uh, during the ceremony, there were a lot of survivors and family members and activists who were disappointed that the prime minister wasn't saying the word. At one point during Trudeau's speech to the audience, uh, a voice kind of broke out from the audience and, and yelled, genocide, say it, and the prime minister didn't. So some certainly feel that the reluctance from the prime minister 
is at odds with his government's commitment to forge a new nation-to-nation relationship with indigenous peoples. Now that the report's been finally released, what's next? The government pledged that they would take some time to absorb the entirety of the report, which is split into two volumes, it's 1,200 pages long, and that they will review the 231 calls to justice. It's a bit of a different take than when Mr. Trudeau, the liberal leader at the time, announced that a future government would embrace the Truth and Reconciliations reports, all of their 94 calls to action. Yeah, and then at that point, we're comparing the Trudeau government in 2015 to 2019, and there's a lot of things that they've obviously learned throughout the years. And yes, maybe that's a response to the fact that the Liberals have moved on some of those TRC calls to action, but you know, if you fact check them, they haven't actually accomplished the vast majority of them. So in this specific case, they just gave a vague promise to do more. Thanks for the C. Thank you, Althea. The Organization of American States has written to the Canadian government saying it wants to establish an expert panel to probe the allegations of genocide in pursuit of, quote, justice. The Liberal government has yet to formally respond. If you enjoyed this episode on iTunes, please leave us a review. You can always reach me through social media. Yes, I read them all. On Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, my handle is at Althea Raj. That's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J. Thanks this week to Alex Patterson over at Canada 2020 for the Obama clip. Follow-up is produced by myself and Ottawa reporter Zian Lam. Our audio producer is Michal Stein. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. Thanks for listening. Thank you.